Okay, two more announcements. Uh, we did God on Tap this past Sunday, and uh, hey, we're in a total groove, let me just say. So it was an awesome time. If you're not familiar with what that is, we go into a bar, and we have a casual interaction discussion on some spiritual topic with people that are Christian, atheist, agnostic, everything in between. And we have found that by creating a safe environment for people to ask their questions, God just does cool things in their lives. And so the next date is on uh, October 28th. We wanted to let you know well in advance. The day before, on October 27th, we are launching our men's ministry. I noticed that there's women clapping. <laughs> that says a lot, I think, right? They know we need help. So on October 27th at my house, 10 o'clock in the morning, college students, let me tell you why we did that. That's very specific. We used to be part of a wonderful men's ministry called Forge. And I had a discussion with one of the leaders, and I said, I would never do a, a men's ministry Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. We will never get a single college student to that. We did, actually. but uh, So we have put that 10 o'clock to be inclusive of you men. I know. We're so sensitive. Um, also, uh, the, we are going to one-up the women here. So bacon, eggs, coffee, pastries. Haywood and I are going to be cooking. It's going to be a great time. We're going to have a talk about being a dangerous man. That'll be a great talk. And um, Haywood is going to teach us men a unique man skill. So we have a video to help you know what we are going to do on that Saturday. There it is. H2O's men's ministry. We are going to practice Tamashiguri is what that is called, if I'm pronouncing that right. So, uh, I don't know if that like petrified everyone from coming or it's like, I am so going. Um, each time we meet as men, we're going to pass out a sword of courage to one man for unique acts of courage. So, that is coming up here in a few weeks. So, we are in uh, part eight of a series called Knowing God. We've, we've really just focused on what God is. We've looked at his holiness. We've looked at his grace. We've looked at his covenant. We've looked at his love. We've looked at his goodness, we've looked at his wildness, we've looked at his sovereignty, his control over all things. And our goal here, we want to be very clear with what our goal here, our goal is for us as believers in Christ to be cap captivated by our rescue. We, we are very intentional about what we're trying to create. We're trying to create Christians that just flat out love God and love Jesus. That's our, our goal here during this series. We want this to be a faith that will last a lifetime. We don't want this to be a phase. We don't want you 10 years from now to look back on those H2O days. We want this no matter what church you're involved in, whether it's us or some other church in the future, we want your faith to last a lifetime. That's why we're focusing all on God. Today's kind of an important talk. It's called the truth of God. We're gonna talk about the truth of God, and here's why this is all important. If God is not truthful in what he's declared to us, then everything we've taught can't be trusted. We can't build our life upon it. 
But if God is truthful, that we can sink in and we can let what God has said sink into our soul and we can live our lives that way, right? So that's what we're going to talk about here today. Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. He stood before Pontius Pilate and he said this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. I've come not just to die, not just to create a discipleship movement, but I've come to bring truth. And I want you to just, just to think about this. Truth is solid. It means we can know things. It means we can have confidence. We can speak out of great conviction and clarity because Jesus has declared it to be true. I came to bring the truth. So Jesus says, I came to bring the truth, but the world responds in the rhetorical, cynical way that Pontius Pilate did. Pilate said, what is truth? Those words are breathed out by our culture in its attitudes of skepticism because of the age that we live in. It seems that everybody, without knowing that they're doing this, speaks from the perspective of Pilate. Jesus says, I came to bring truth, and the world says, yeah, but the truth is kind of a power play created by some religious people to keep the ignorant masses under their control. Jesus said, I came to bring truth, and the world says, well, what about my opinions? What about my thoughts, my preferences? Jesus said, I came to bring truth, and the world says, like Pilate, what is truth? There's really no such thing as absolute truth. That's the age in which we live right now. So to begin this talk, I just want to ask the question, what is truth? What is truth? What are we talking about here? And truth is the self-expression of God. Truth is God saying, it's like God saying, I want to sit down with you and talk, and I want to tell you about me, and I want to tell you about you, and I want to tell you about the world. I'm not lying. I'm making this up. I want you to trust entirely. It's God revealing himself and our world to us. It's the self-expression of God. It's like God unzips his chest and what comes out? Truth. That's why Jesus said, I am the truth. But following Jesus today is difficult because we live in a postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth world. So what do we do with truth? What effect is truth supposed to have on us? And how am I supposed to share the truth with other people? That's the focus of my talk here today. Scripture says this about truth. Titus. Titus 1-2 says, God is the God who never lies. He never lies. There is no falsehood in him. There is no dark side he never lies. Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible. It's not just that God never lies, it's impossible for God to lie because he would be speaking out of that which is not who he is. And so Isaiah 65.16 refers to God, well, you're the God of truth. 
And I know for me personally, the more I've pressed into Scripture and I've let it sink into my mind and I've thought deeply about even the difficult passages of Scripture, God has brought me into a new world and I've understood Him and known Him and walked with Him. And that's what we want for all of us. So let's look at John 17. Uh, this is Jesus shortly after the conversation, no, shortly before the conversation with Pilate. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And so the text doesn't actually say this, but John, one of his followers, had to creep in a little bit and listen to Jesus as he's praying so that John could record these words. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. What Jesus is saying here is that truth is an active thing. It operates on your heart. It gives wisdom and discernment. It makes you different than you were a few minutes ago. It changes you. It transforms you. It goes to work on your heart. So how is that to happen? How are we going to be changed? How are we going to be transformed? Jesus continues in his prayer, and he tells us, your word is truth. This little saying of Jesus summarizes everything. He's talking to God and saying, change your people. How? Through the truth, through your word. So some of you have gotten, I've, it's so encouraging for me as a pastor to hear like five times in the last month, someone has said to me with excitement, hey, I just got my first Bible. The look on these people's faces as they like, now I'm going to read this for myself is so beautiful. It's so beautiful what God is doing there. I want you to know some of you that are still on the outside proceeding, trying to get to the inside, that for some people coming to know Jesus is like God walking into a dark room and just flipping the switch. And it's like, wow, I see. But that's not true for everybody. Take heart because sometimes it's like we have a dimmer switch and it just slowly begins to dawn on us. So, in my years and years and years and years and years and years of years of following Jesus, I've had four main battles with the truth, and I want to share with you about these battles that I've had. The first battle, round number one, is with the Gospels, because we're building everything upon what the followers of Jesus said. So my, my beginning point, my assumption is that the followers of Jesus wrote down the very words that Jesus said so that we can build our lives in confidence upon them. That was my beginning point. That was my presumption. But what I was taught when I went away to college was that the four Gospels are not even written by the original disciples of Christ and that they were written perhaps hundreds of years later, and there's all kinds of contradictions, and you just can't trust them. And I know in the early state of my faith, I had this, oh no, panic, that even though I've committed my life to Jesus, and I know I'm different, and I know God, and he's washed me, and he's cleaned me, and I can't explain even how he's changed me. Some person that doesn't love God has come along and told me something about the Gospels, and I've believed it and panicked. 
So I began to do some research. How did we get the New Testament? How was it written? I began to research into the original followers of Jesus and to what they actually wrote. And that began to give me assurance. Most of all, I began to just dig into the Gospels. And when you begin to read the writings of Jesus' first followers, the thing that you will become convinced of is these guys are utterly convinced of what they've seen. They're utterly convinced. I remember coming across the words of Luke when he said, I've investigated everything carefully and written everything down in consecutive order so that you may have assurance. This is a person who's an investigator saying, I've checked this out thoroughly. And we look at the words of John, and John says, my hands have felt him. My eyes have seen him. My ears have heard him speak. This is a person with utter sincerity in what they believe. And we look at the words of Peter, who says, we, were, we didn't follow fairy tales. We were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. And I began to see a discrepancy between what I was told in college and what the Bible said about itself. And I ran across this quote by Pascal. I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. And I just want that to sink into you, that the writings of the New Testament, that almost every single person who wrote the New Testament was put to death for their faith. Not just for their faith, but for their eyewitness testimony. It's one thing to be sincere and say, I believe this. It's another thing to say, I saw this, and I testify of what I have seen. So the question remains, though, how do we know that what we have in the New Testament writings is actually the truth? How do we know, like, maybe it got passed down from one generation to another and to another and to another? So... I shared a couple of weeks ago that I was a poet, right? That I've written some poems. And I'll never share those poems with you, and I apologize for that. So let's say I write a poem, and I, and I bury it into the sand. And hundreds and thousands of years go by. How would you know that the poem that you found is actually the authentic poem? And a lot of people have done research on this, and the research is profound. The way that we have confidence in ancient manuscripts is by the sheer number of them. If there's just one, you have nothing to compare it to, but if you have two, you can compare them one to another, right? If you have 200, then you can gain a great degree of confidence in the ancient manuscript. So Sophocles is the first person, uh, ancient poet, actually, and we have two hundred manuscripts from him. From Plato, one of his writings, we have, again, 200 manuscripts. Great degree of confidence in them. The uh, ancient manuscript that has the, the most number of manuscripts is Homer's Iliad. And there's 2,000 manuscripts. And nobody, nobody says about Homer's Iliad, well, I don't know if that's what he really wrote. So we compare that to the New Testament, and we have 5,800 manuscripts. If we were to make a stack of any ancient manuscript on one side 
and on the other side, stack up the New Testament manuscripts that we have. The ancient, any ancient writer would be about four pages high. I want to get this right. The New Testament would stack up not four feet high, but it would go up one mile. One mile. 2.6 million pages. So round one, the fog in my mind was cleared, and I realized these guys got their throats cut for what they wrote because they were dead serious about salvation in Jesus. Round two. Round two was over the battle, the battle over the truthfulness of Genesis. So I need to go rather quickly here. I hope you all can follow along. What I assumed was that the seven days of Genesis chapter 1 were literal 24-hour periods of time. What I assumed was that the Bible was telling us that the universe was created in 4004 B.C., roughly 6,000 years ago, because some guy named Bishop Usher did some work on a genealogy and calculated backwards and made several theological mistakes, I must add, but said that's when the universe was created. And I assumed that the book of Genesis was giving a scientific date and scientific knowledge about when the universe was created. When I learned about the Big Bang for the first time, that the universe came into, according to science, came into being 13.8 billion years ago, I had that oh no experience. It's like, oh no. Did Genesis lie to us? But then I learned about who the uh, person that came up with Big Bang Theory was, guy named, a Dutch uh, guy named Lemaitre, who was a Bible believer. Huh. Nobody told me about that. And then I heard, then I realized that Genesis doesn't give us a scientific age for the age of the universe. Once you see this, it becomes absurd. Of course it doesn't. Why? Because Moses wrote in 1400 B.C. Galileo, you could argue, was the beginning of science, was in 1600, 1600 A.D. That's 3,000 years before. Of course Moses is not trying to give us a scientific age. Science wasn't invented yet. Then I, word that the, then I learned that the Hebrew word for day is the word yaum. And it has two meanings. One is a literal 24-hour period, and the other is a long era of time. And then I learned that Augustine in 300 AD, 1,300 years before science came along, said to the Christian community, let us not pour the concrete on this idea of a literal six days and a young earth. That's only one interpretation of the text. And then I learned that what Moses wrote, that this universe began in a moment of time, in a flash of light and heat, is right. And it's what science teaches. And then I began to see scientist after scientist looking to the Bible as the authoritative source of knowledge for the beginning of the universe. Now, just a quick tangent here. I hope I don't offend anyone here. If you believe in a literal 
24-hour, six-day earth. That's not really what my point is. My point is that we can have utter con confidence in the text of Genesis. Robert Jastrow, agnostic, said this, most remarkable of, of all, astronomers have found proof that the universe sprang into existence abruptly in a sudden moment of creation as the Bible said it did. This is not some unlearned Christian spouting their faith. This is a learned physicist, astronomer, agnostic. H.J. Lipson, physicist, said, I think, however, that we must go further than this and admit that the only accepted explanation is creation. The only acceptable explanation for the beginning of the world is creation. I know that this is anathema to physicists, as indeed it is to me. But we must not reject a theory that we do not like if the experimental evidence supports it. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying I hate the thought, because I'm not a Christian, I hate the thought that the Bible might be right, but I have to say that that is true. Arno Penzias, the best data we have are exactly what I have predicted. Had I nothing to go on but the first five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Are you guys like utterly amazed yet? We need to stand in reverence toward this book. Finally, Robert Jastrow again. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> oh, how the turn tables. I enjoyed writing that into the sermon. That's a reference to the office, in case you didn't catch that. Round one, round two, round three. Round three was not with a specific text in the Bible. Round three for me had to do with people that held the Bible. They became a stumbling block to me. They became offensive. And I, I want to give a little disclaimer here. I'm a church man. I believe in the church with all of my heart. I believe that Jesus designed the church. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against what? The church, this community of faith. I'm a church man. I invite you into community in this church if you so choose. However, I am critical. I am angry and frustrated and critical at Christians who hold the truth poorly. I do want to brainwash you. I do want to indoctrinate you into looking at truth a certain way. My experience with most Christians has been beautiful. I have found Christians to be remarkably compassionate. I found most Christians to be very intelligent. But some, if I may so say, scare me. Some Christians I find are overly dogmatic and want to argue about everything. Some Christians I find are unscientific. They're insecure. 
When I walked across the campus at UCF the other day, I walked past a campus preacher screaming at the crowd of people who were screaming back to him. And it was called the good news. It was not good. I've also seen Christians, hear me on this, Christians so fiercely committed to the truth that they can't apply the truth to a hurting person. As I've meditated on this, I've realized that some people think that truth is a sledgehammer. If only I hit you enough times, you'll believe. I've learned that some Christians believe not only that it's a sledgehammer, but that their character doesn't matter at all. That the good news is the good news no matter how I communicate it. That's not true. The messenger is the message. The good news is no longer good news if I am bad news. My own experience of the truth is that it is sometimes like a, a hammer. It is also like medicine. Like I've got to begin to need this. And the more I need this, it's like going to the doctor. And when I go to the doctor and I say, I'm sick, I need help, then all of a sudden I have medicine and then I'm beginning to heal. My own experience of the truth has also been that it's like a good friend. A good friend that stops by your house and says, hey, can we talk? In a very relational manner, I want to share something with you. Very soft tone to help me where I'm at. I learned this in seminary. I don't have time to uh, share this exhaustively, but I do want us to look at this circles diagram. And uh, the thing I want you to get is that there's different kind of beliefs. There's core beliefs, things that you would die for. There are middle beliefs, things that are like, well, you and I may disagree, and so it's important that we talk about that stuff, but we don't need to die over it. I don't need to kill you. You do not need to kill me. We can be friends, even though we disagree on a middle belief. And then there's peripheral beliefs. Peripheral beliefs are things that some Christians want to argue about and really don't really matter all that much. So this diagram helped me to understand the world that I was in, that there are people that are utterly dogmatic and want to argue about everything, and we just don't have to see eye to eye. And then I learned the history of the church. And this helped me more than anything. And I'm just talking about the past few hundred years. Christians have always been opposed by something. I want you to hear that Christianity has always been hard. In the early days of Christianity, we were opposed by a Roman Empire that wanted to kill us. There are 13 em emperors that persecuted Christians. Today in America, not so much. In the last 200 years, though, Christianity was opposed by a number of forces, and the trajectory of Christianity changed. I think it started with Darwin. Darwin came along and made people think that Genesis is not true. And so we couldn't trust it. 
liberalism, liberal Christianity came along, which is a view of life, view of the Bible, that says some of the stories here are just myth. We can't really trust it. And so the response to these things was an article, a paper written called The Fundamentals. And the fundamentals were, this is what Christianity is, these basic things. But the fundamentals led to a style of Christianity called fundamentalism. And I want you to hear this. Fundamentalism was a bunch of Christians say, we are going to withdraw from society. We are not going to talk about science. We are not even going to have a relationship with the world. Instead, we're going to posture ourselves as the arbiters of truth, and we're going to preach at the world and say, thus says the Lord. And I hope that you see the mistake here. Christianity is never meant to walk away from people. It's never meant to hit them over the head with a sledgehammer. It's never meant to be unscientific. And the fundamentalist Christian was born. And here's the whole point I want to drive to here. Truth, if held poorly, truth, if held poorly, can be really, really ugly. So this helped me and helped us as the leadership team here at H2O. We are not soft on truth. We stand on truth. We build our lives on truth. We want you to build your lives on truth, but you need to learn how to handle it. You need to learn how to not use it as a sledgehammer in people's lives. I want to look at 1 Peter 3.15. First, 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. Is Christianity meant to be defended? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. What we're to defend is our hope. What is the reason for your hope? A person defending Christianity without being a person of hope, without a person that has a smile on their face, if we become defensive, when Christians become defensive and they argue, they're no longer giving a defense for their hope. And I want you to look at the last phrase here in verse 15, yet do so with gentleness and respect who are we to respect? The person that thinks the opposite of us. The truth about truth is that it really matters how we hold it. All right, round four. Round four, this is the last thing, is the writings of Paul. I love the writings of Paul. I love Paul. The Apostle Paul has changed my life. He's taught me how to think about God. 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul wrote this. For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And I just want you to look and think deeply about this. Is this a fundamentalist approach saying I will fight and argue with people? No. Say my goal is to win people. My goal is to help people. And so not only will I engage with people, 
I have made myself a servant of people. What is the posture of Christianity toward an unbelieving world? We want to be your servants. Can you let that sink in for a minute? How beautiful that is. Now, if you struggle with some of the hard things that Paul wrote, I want you to know that you're not alone, and I want to give you a path forward. 2 Peter 3.15. If you're thinking, if you run across some of the writings of Paul and you think, man, I'm really having a hard time with this, you're not alone. Peter said the same thing. In verse 15, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all these letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. There's some tough stuff written about in the Bible. The Bible says that. The Bible says you may struggle with this. You may have a hard time with this. So it's like Peter saying, hey, I'm having trouble tracking with some of the stuff that Paul wrote. But I believe it to be inspired by God. So I want to give you a little bit of advice. If any of you here, if any of us here as a community, if you struggle with anything that Paul wrote, here's my advice to you. First of all, I want you to know that you're not alone. It's okay. It's okay. But don't, secondly, don't let that struggle become your focus. Don't become so obsessed about the hard thing that Paul wrote about that your reaction is like a boxer because that's the way some of you feel. Like your topic, that sticky topic, whatever it is, comes along, someone reads it, and you like bring out these boxing gloves, like, let's go. Like, and I found that it's really hard to turn the pages of, scri of Scripture when you're wearing boxing gloves, you know? <laughs> like God wants to speak to us. Don't let it become that thing that you struggle with. Don't let it become your focus. I wonder if that's why so many people in our world are de-churched. That the church has not known how to help people that are struggling. And that our only idea is, well, I'm going to preach truth at you like a sledgehammer until you submit to the Bible. You know, so we did some research. Uh, we did a little study to find out what percentage of people that come to H2O for the first time are de-churched and what percentage are unchurched. And the number of people that find their way to H2O, five times more are de-churched than unchurched. And what that tells us is that there's some willingness to believe that the Bible is true, but there's some degree of hurtness over the way they have been treated by a church. Does that make sense to you all? So if you've been burned by the church, I just want you to know, who hasn't? We all have. But a burn victim must be handled carefully. And so we want to be a church that does that. So I want to show you a little video. It is of a, it's about seven minutes long. It's of a former worship leader that lost her faith. And I want us to look at this because we want to have a faith that lasts a lifetime. Go ahead. In order to belong into this in this tribe you have to conform and if you have doubts you're a dangerous person
how many leaders have been built up in these megachurches that fall because the pressure's just too much. And as I look back, we were two kids like trying so hard to get it right. My name is Lisa Gunger. I am a recent author. I'm a musician and a songwriter. My mom and I found this wild church. They called themselves the Holy Rollers and from the moment you walked in, it was loud. People were like running around the church. I just think it's awesome. So while a lot of people think it's crazy, filled with crazy people, I, I loved it and I was in. I ended up going to college and I start dating this boy who's like super Christian. We get married really young. We're too young to even rent a car when we're married. We didn't drink or cuss. So we end up getting a job at a really big church in Michigan. And this church was the size of a mall. I mean, it's huge. There's about 10,000 people. We built a house out in the country. They paid for our car, for our gas. They paid for Michael's school. We were 20 years old and we had this, this dream job. We didn't have sex with each other before we were married. We waited to kiss, we did it all right. We had this transactional idea of God and that's why we landed this really great, awesome job. We started trying to get pregnant and we couldn't get pregnant. And people would tell me, but just pray and believe, like just say it and it will happen. And I thought, I just don't know how that can be true. We were traveling the world, we were going overseas and playing to sometimes 60,000 people <laughs> in arenas. The more we ran into other people's stories, the more we started doubting what we'd been given. And Michael and I took this trip in Europe from Rome. We took trains up to Krakow. We visited the concentration camps. We walked through the crematoriums. And it's real hard to come back to America and pray for something when you have these images of people's hair in piles and children's shoes in piles. Your ideas on what a good God is can change pretty dramatically. So I came back and, and found myself trying to pray for us to have a baby or pray for our church or pray for these different things. And I just kept thinking about the concentration camp and how my whole perspective on my faith has been a transaction. If I'm good enough or if I pray enough, if I believe enough, then I get blessings and I get a baby or a good life. It's not how life is. We all had this perspective on who was in and who was out. For Michael and I, that began to change slowly. You have to conform, and if you have doubts, you're a dangerous person. I remember looking around going, what am I doing here? What am I building with my life? We realize we're no good for this place that we're at because our ideas have changed so much and that we needed to leave. I started weeping and crying and freaking out, going, what are we doing? We don't know what we're doing. Do you realize what we just left? Like we left all of our security and we started becoming heretics, you know. We go to Denver. We end up starting a little house church in our apartment. Our whole goal for it was that it was inclusive and that it was vulnerable and that it was this place that we had always dreamed of church being. More questions and more doubt uh, were arising for Michael and I. Our like heretic levels kept like shifting and changing and like kind of one-upping each other. <laughs> Eventually, Michael and I, we get pregnant, and I was really glad for that because it didn't feel like 
our daughter was this answer, right? Like we really went through this trial and this suffering and now we're getting this baby girl. Our ideas of God are deconstructing. What is it that we still believe? But Michael looks at me and just says, I, I don't believe in God anymore. Like I can't believe any of it. And he just ends up like talking more. And I, I remember just like freezing in my whole body because there's always been, I was okay with the questions, but I wasn't okay with, with that. I end up getting pregnant again, and we go through a whole tour with me being pregnant. And for Michael, he feels all this freedom in atheism because he's not struggling anymore. For me, I'm feeling all this anxiety because I want him to believe a certain thing, and I want myself to believe a certain thing. And, we're, and I'm still just struggling hard to belong and to be okay. And I ended up having to quit a tour early because I'm having, our baby's having difficulty growing. She's born a month and a half early. She's just beautiful. And like with our first daughter, we're both crying. It's just this beautiful, beautiful moment. And, and then she turns blue. I remember this nurse coming over and she's like shaking and looking really worried. And she tells us our daughter has Down syndrome. And so then the days that follow, we find out that Lucy has two heart issues and she has to have heart surgery her second day of life and then she has to have another heart surgery when she's six months old. Everything really changed for me. So I feel like this story that I've been living my whole life kind of came to this climax with Lucy's birth. When Lucy was born, we had this huge social media blow up. Um, and there's stories in magazines and um, all over the internet about our heresy and we were completely pushed out of the church world of this tribe that we really loved and really painful and devastating it so many times. Looking back on all of it, I'm deeply grateful for all of the things that happened and I don't want what we used to have. We live in a different headspace now. It's a completely different perspective and the, the connection I feel with my daughters there's no us versus them. There's no you and I. There's no winners and losers. Part of my dream is that people wouldn't be so afraid and so scared. I know a lot of people are still in this very conservative, fundamental bubble, and, and they can be so afraid to break out of that for fear of what will happen to their lives. And this, can, this happens in any religion. So my dream is that we're not so afraid. I love that image of her husband putting on weight as she was. It's a real thing. Uh, here's why I wanted to share that with you. I hope you, that you heard her mention transactional faith. We talked about that last week. The whole idea that I'm going to follow Jesus and he's going to bless my life. And it just doesn't work that way. So many people begin and they don't continue because they had a different expectation of what this would be like. This is why we've taken so much time in this series to talk about God being wild, to talk about God being out of the box, to tell you that hardship will come because we want your faith to last you a lifetime. But did you hear how she described how she was treated? That because she was struggling, that she became dangerous in the eyes of her church. 
And may we never be like that. May this be, and I don't mean this because it sounds pithy and cute, may we be a safe place to hear a dangerous message. Christ has come. Let's go back to Pilate. Let's go back to Jesus standing in front of Pilate and saying, I've come to testify of the truth. So I want to invite Bobby up here to lead us in worship. But there's four things I hope that we take away from this talk. We need to understand the world we're in. We need to understand that we are in a postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth world that breathes in the cynicism of Pilate. We need to know that truth will change our lives, but we must incarnate truth to the world. We must live it out in our marriages, in our friendships, in our views of sex, in our way we relate to everyone. We must live out the truth. One aspect of authentically living out the truth is having the freedom to struggle against it, to struggle with it, to be in a community that will walk beside you as you struggle with the questions of faith. Every single human being that starts out to follow Jesus at one point will encounter struggle. It's how we grow. It's what grew me up. But then again, I was in a community that would help. And lastly, is the conviction that if we believe the truth and we hold on to the truth courageously, it will last a lifetime. We will be able to run our race and at the end of our lives say, thank you for what you've done and revealed to me through your truth. Let's stand on up and move into worship. Father God, we thank you for the mind-blowing, transformative, world-changing truth, for difficult, cutting truth, for healing truth, for relational truth, for the truth about doubt and the truth about struggle and the truth that we're called to be a community that is built upon truth but incarnates truth. And we thank you most of all that you've already revealed truth in such a way by being the embodiment of truth, by saying, I am the truth. you now. We just pray that you would move upon us. Take the dimmer switch. Just move it a little higher as we worship and know you for who you are. We thank you that we can do that because truth came down. 
truth took on a body and lived and died for us. And so we worship you in the great name of Jesus.